Well, this morning, as we walk through this passage, I want you to think about what is the difference between something that is genuine and something that is counterfeit? Something that is good and something that is rotten. When you're a kid and you open your grandma's birthday card and there is a cash bill in there, you want that to be genuine. You have no assumptions that, Jana, that grandma would send a counterfeit bill, but nonetheless, you still hope it's genuine, right? When you go to the grocery store and you walk through the produce aisle, you are looking for fruit that is good. The last thing you are wanting is to find fruit that is rotten. Uh, and what's the marks and characteristics of each? So I worked at a grocery store for a few years through, through college and right, right after college and uh, spent a little bit of time in the produce department, which I don't eat a lot of produce, but uh, I enjoyed you know, at least working there so that when my wife wants me to pick up like a cucumber, I know which ones are good and which ones are rotten. Like you can figure out some of those characteristics, right? And you know, uh, people always tell you to thump on the watermelon. I have no clue why. Still yet to figure out what, what sound you're listening for and which one's good and which one's rotten. Uh, cantaloupe, I do like taking cantaloupe and smelling right where the stem comes out, and sometimes you can tell if it's ripe, right? I, I haven't figured out what a rotten one smells like, but at least I know what a good one smells like, and that, that helps a little bit. Well, when it comes to following Christ, when it comes to being a devoted and genuine Christian and follower of Christ, what is, a, what is the life of someone who follows Christ supposed to look like? What's genuine and what's counterfeit? What is good and what is rotten? And as we walk through the passage this morning, you're going to see marks and characteristics of Mary's life and why her genuine love for Christ was, was that which was good. It was genuine. It was She understood something about Jesus that ought to change the way that we live our life as well and the way that we interact with Jesus. And yet you also see uh, some descriptions carried out of the person of Judas, the one who is in just a few short days going to betray Jesus. And you see characteristics of his life such that they ought to be a warning to us. Here's a counterfeit. Rotten. How is it that someone that close to Christ, someone that close in the inner circle who spent so much time with Christ, how could their life be rotten? How could their life be counterfeit? What would... What would lead to that? And could that be true of any one of us? These are some of the things we're going to think through as we walk through our passage this morning. So if you turn to John 11, which George just read, and we're going to start in John chapter 11, verse 55. And here's what... John says there's just been we've just finished up this passage in in chapter 11 where Christ has raised Lazarus from the dead and this caused the convening of the council and the Sanhedrin comes together and the chief priests and they say we need to put Christ to death we need to arrest him and the result of that is that Jesus has to retreat he needs to go away to a town called Ephraim and spend some time uh, uh, just kind of under the radar because his life is in danger, and yet he's going to make the decision to come back to Bethany in just a few short days. Now remember, Bethany was very close to Jerusalem, less than two miles away from Jerusalem. So look at chapter 11, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the stage is set, right? Passover is coming. They're, they're, People from the surrounding country are coming into the city and there's all this heightened tension. For three years they've been watching Jesus' ministry. This is the third Passover that John mentions, at least the third. And you would see uh, Passover mentioned in chapter 2, in chapter 6. And so here we come to uh, another year and there's all this surrounding controversy, excitement, tension. And people are saying, where, where is he? Do you think he's going to show up? Will he come for our most important religious feast, for our most important religious festival? And yet the chief priests and the Pharisees had given this order that if he shows up, people were supposed to let them know they wanted to arrest him. So look at chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore comes to Bethany, that little town that's just less than two miles from Jerusalem. Where Lazarus was, when Jesus had raised from the, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, what's taking place here? How do we understand what is going on? It would be worth comparing this account to similar accounts in the other Gospels. Matthew and Mark record a very similar incident. They don't mention Mary by name. Uh, they say that it took, account, took place in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, but many of the details line up. They mention that Jesus was anointed uh, on the head. And, and so some of these details you look at and say, well, well, they're not contradictory. They're told from two different perspectives. And so some of those details line up in those two accounts. Most people think that Matthew, Mark, and John are probably telling the same story. Not everybody. Uh, Luke, however, tells a, a pretty different account of an anointing. And it's probably, this is the one where uh, uh, um, the, the, the dinner is taking place at a home of a Pharisee. And there's a woman of ill repute in the city who comes in. And she has an expensive perfume and not the same kind of perfume, a different one. And she anoints Jesus' feet with her tears even, it says, that she washes his feet with her tears before applying the perfume. There's enough differences in Luke that that's probably a separate anointing. And so we understand what's taking place here, that there are many people gathered. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, he points us out. This is, this is taking place in Bethany where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Uh, uh, Martha was serving. There were people there. The disciples were there. Uh, and they're ho having a dinner. And they would have been reclining at the table. They didn't sit in chairs, but would have been laying down. And here Mary comes with a pound of expensive ointment. So the word that's used there is not actually like our 16-ounce pound. It's, uh, I think, a little smaller than a half a liter. So think like 11 and a half ounces is a little more than a cup. Uh, and in terms of how, how expensive this ointment was, you see later in the passage that it could have been, Judas says, this could have been sold for 300 denarii. Well, a denarii was a, a, a day's wage for an average laborer. So 300 days wages, close to a year's, were, it would have been a year in the fact that they didn't collect a wage on the Sabbath, a year's salary for the average laborer for an 11-ounce bottle of perfume. I googled because I was just curious. Like, are they still making 
perfume like that, you know, because, sorry, sweetheart, I've never given it to you for Christmas, you know, like, uh, so some of the bottles, you know, are expensive because they have jewels in them. I was trying to find one where you're not paying for the diamonds in the bottle, you know, just like perfume. I found one for like 12 grand an ounce, 12 grand an ounce. You're not getting that for Christmas this year. So, so think of like the most expensive perfume is very rare, very extravagant. And Mary brings this and she sees Jesus as so valuable, so worthy that gives, she gives him an anointing fit for a king. And probably the Matthew and Mark and John accounts, they, they are all, they're all true, told from different perspectives that his head was anointed, his feet were anointed. There would have been enough liquid that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This wasn't a drop on the feet. Uh, the clothes were probably even included in the sense that this perfume would have stuck with him for days. This smell would have stuck with him. And you get the sense that it's an eyewitness report in that the house was filled with the fragrance. He remembers being there, smelling what that was like at that dinner. Now, what's the reaction of this? Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was the one about to betray him. John puts in that little commentary, right? Because he, he already introduced Judas once in one of the earlier chapters. Same thing. He had to let people know, by the way, this is the betrayer. He, he's, he's piecing it together so that everybody knows when they get to that part of the story, they saw some of the red flags along the way. And he says this, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he, he's got this real spiritual sounding complaint. And in Matthew and Mark, you see that several of the disciples were upset. Here, John takes work to note that it's Judas who's kind of leading the charge on this, the one who is about to betray Jesus. And, and even though his heart is rotten, he comes up with this real spiritual sounding excuse. Why waste all of this? You could have sold this for, for a year's worth of wages and the money could have been given to the poor. Right? That sounds... That's, aren't we supposed to care about the poor? Wouldn't Jesus care about the poor? And so he's got this uh, a frustrating response. Matthew and Mark even talk about the disciples being indignant, like they are angry at this kind of uh, action. So verse 6, John makes sure that we know what's going on behind the scenes. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So John wants us to know the heart behind Judas. And he, Judas, Judas didn't bring up this spiritual sounding problem because he cared for the poor. He did it because he cared about himself. He was a thief. He had the charge of the money bag. And, and he here, he, he sounds as if he cares about others, but he only cares about himself. So you even think back two chapters to the Good Shepherd where Jesus is going through and explaining that he's the Good Shepherd and he cares for his sheep. And there's hired hands who do not care for the sheep. They only care about themselves and they're thieves and robbers that break in and steal and destroy. And, and here's, here's one of them, Judas, right? He doesn't care about others. He only cares about himself. And John uses this play on words when he says that he, uh, in verse 7, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. My Bible says he used to help himself to what was put in it. Some of yours would have a different word, but the, the, the word there is the word for carry. He carried the money bag, and it can also mean carried off. 
So there's a double meaning there that not only did he carry the money bag, he carried off the money that was in the money bag. He helped himself to it. So he's thinking about the profit that would have been. So you think of the greed of this man that for, uh, uh, in just a few days, for 30 pieces of silver, which was not a valuable amount of money, uh, if for even less money than this, he's willing to betray Christ and to turn him over to the soldiers. And what, what must be going through his mind when he thinks about a year's worth of wages that he wanted to help himself to? And look at Jesus' response then in verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let me deal with these two verses separately. First, just his response, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. It's a little bit tricky to understand what, what, that, uh, so what the language there is meaning. What is he saying? Is there some that's left over that she's supposed to keep for the burial? And probably not because Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea are the ones that prepare the body when we get to that point. So I don't think that it would have been this ointment that was even used for preparing the body. The idea here is, is leave her alone. She did this in view of my burial. So the way that one man says it, Jesus is therefore saying, in effect, leave the woman alone. She has not sold her perfume and given the money in charity in order that she might be able to use it now with a view to my burial. So it's not that she understood that Jesus was about to die. She, she may have, but I don't think we have reason to know that. At this point, she knows he's the king. She knows he's the Messiah. She knows he's worthy of this. And Jesus understands that this anointing would be fit for his burial. It, it, would, it, it is part of the preparation process. And therefore, don't, don't rebuke her for saying that she's wasteful, for saying that this should have been given to the poor. What she did was very appropriate in light of who Jesus was. And then Jesus speaks. Why would Jesus say that? Is it, is it that Jesus doesn't care about the poor? Remember, Judas' concern was not about the poor. Yes, Jesus cares about the poor. He says this, For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. The difference here is not, don't draw a distinction on the elevation of Jesus and the poor. It's not as if one has an elevated status and the other. The distinction is that Jesus will not always be around. The poor will always be around. That's the distinction. And, and it's almost as if Jesus is calling Judas bluff. Okay, Judas, if you really care about the poor, you will have your opportunities to give to the poor. You will always have the poor. I will not always be here. And, and, and so, yes, Jesus cares and instructs his followers to serve the poor, but he understands for his disciples right now, it's very important that they realize he will not always be around. He's within days of his death at this point. And so he rebukes Judas. He defends Mary. And you have this real interesting account of what happened. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, as he's speaking to Judas, he says, you will always have the poor with you if you want. Uh, he makes some comment about if you want to help them, you'll be able to. Well, Judas didn't want to help them. He simply only cared about himself. So then let's see what happens in the plot to kill Lazarus. There's kind of another um, uh, brief commentary on setting the stage and what, what is taking place in the day in verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
So it kind of closes with, in some ways, a similar part to the few verses that we read at the beginning, uh, that, that large crowds were coming, right? They wanted to see Jesus. They knew he had returned to the area, but they also wanted to come see this guy, Lazarus, because they, they, you know, word had spread, hey, there's a dead guy who's now alive. He was sitting there at the table eating. We, we can see Jesus and we can see Lazarus. Let's go. And so the chief priest realized, wait a minute, we, we got a problem. We, we, how are we going to handle this? We're going to have to put Lazarus to death as well. We've got to get rid of both of them. And so you kind of see the tension rise again. So we've walked through the verses. This is kind of the context of what, what's taking place in these passages. Now, how should we as a people think about what's taking place here? What are some lessons for us to learn and think about? What's some application that we can apply to our lives? I kind of want to look at several of the characters. I'm going to look at Jesus and Lazarus, kind of compare and contrast. Uh, Kossenberger looks at this passage and, and he calls it a, a tale of contrast that you've got Jesus and Lazarus who uh, surrounding the same event, death, uh, Lazarus has just come out of the tomb. Jesus is about to go into the tomb and so you can compare something there and we'll learn something about that. But then you've also got Mary and Judas and in this issue of contrasting. They're on opposite sides of the spectrum. Mary with the good heart, with the genuine heart, and Judas with the corrupt, with the counterfeit heart, with the rotten heart. And let's compare and contrast their two reactions. So let's start with Jesus and Lazarus. As it's, it's, let's think even about Lazarus' resurrection. And I'm stepping away from the main point of where this is going. This doesn't necessarily have to do with counterfeit and good, or with uh, good and rotten. This is just stepping aside a little bit, uh, thinking about the historical reliability of these New Testament gospel accounts of the life of Christ. Um, it's very significant that Lazarus is, is written into this story, and it says he's sitting there at the table eating. Now, it, remember, because of the events surrounding Lazarus' death, there's no way somebody could have said, well, that was just a ghost, or that's just in your imagination. And here's Lazarus sitting at the table with other people. There's a whole crowd there. There's eyewitnesses that would have been watching Lazarus eat, right? And you're seeing food disappear off of his plate. The same thing is true in the life of Christ. And I'd like you, I've got a few verses for you in the book of Luke that you'll see on the screen. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is talking to his disciples. So this is just, this is just a few weeks after this dinner there in Bethany, the, the post-resurrection Christ, and you see him eating, and he's talking with his disciples, and he says, don't be discouraged. Uh, why are you having doubts? And he says this in verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Now that seems like a weird... Con we can gloss right over that. But why would Luke want us to know that Jesus was hungry? Well, the, the, the proof of the bodily resurrection, right? And they watched fish disappear into his mouth. If he was just a ghost, I don't think he would have eaten that. And the, remember, you've got eyewitnesses written into these accounts. So both with Lazarus and with Jesus, and at this event, the, John is writing as an eyewitness, and he's saying, I was, I was there. I remember the, 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 
the aroma filling the house. And so in these accounts of the gospel and the way that they are, the events are recorded, remember it's people who are not just passing on what they've heard. They're saying, I was there and I saw it with my own eyes. And there are other peoples who would act as checks and balances on these stories. And if they were not true, there would have been a lot of controversy. No, that's not the way it happened. And you would have seen some of these stories die down. But it ought to give us confidence that these people claiming to be eyewitnesses who others could have act as checked and balances on their witness, many of these eyewitnesses died for their faith, died for what they claimed to be true. Now, there are many people throughout human history who have died for something they believed to be true, for a sincerely held belief. But that's not why so many of these eyewitness apostles died. They died and were willing to die and give their life for something that they claimed to see with their own eyes. So if you're going to say that this account is all something that's cooked up and it's a story that's not true, you've got to be willing to say that there was not one, not two, but many, many eyewitnesses who were were willing to give their life for a bold-faced lie. That would be hard to fathom. And so it ought to give us assurance and confidence in the historical reliability of some of these New Testament accounts. And just as Lazarus being there after his resurrection in a few weeks, you would see post-resurrection accounts of Jesus and the hearts of the followers of Christ would be encouraged. And so you have this quote in your bulletin by J.C. Ryle where he says, just as Jesus placed beyond reasonable doubt the rising again of a beloved disciple within two miles of Jerusalem, so in a very few weeks, he placed beyond doubt his own victory over the grave. If we believe that Lazarus rose again, we need not doubt that Jesus rose again also. If we believe that Jesus rose again, we need not doubt the truth of his messiahship, the reality of his acceptance as our mediator, and the certainty of our own resurrection. That ought to encourage us this morning as we think about the truth of who Jesus is. I want to think about Mary and Judas. Let's compare and contrast Mary and Judas. And we're going to come back in now to thinking about this idea. Well, what's the difference between what's genuine and good and what is corrupt, what is counterfeit, what is evil? Let's start with Judas and thinking about the way he responds. Here's a guy that walked closely with Jesus and you see his heart revealed. In just a few short days, he's going to betray Jesus. How does this happen? He's one of the 12 disciples. He claimed to be a follower of Christ. His protest even sounded spiritual, right? He comes with spiritual reasons, and, and he's saying, uh, how, how, excuse me, he's coming with these spiritual protests, and yet you hear John's commentary on his life. How does something like this happen? J.C. Ryle writes about it this way, and he says, hardness appears in Judas, in Judas Iscariot, who, after being a chosen apostle and a preacher of the kingdom of heaven, turns out at last a thief and a traitor. So long as the world stands, this unhappy man will be a lasting proof of the depth of human corruption, that anyone could follow Christ as a disciple for three years, see all his miracles, hear all his teaching, receive at his hand repeated kindnesses, and be counted an apostle, and yet prove rotten at heart in the end. All this at first sight appears incredible and impossible. Yet the case of Judas shows plainly that the thing can be. Few things, perhaps, are so little realized as the extent of the fall of man. Here's Judas. He 
claimed to be one of the followers of Christ. And yet he clearly, there's no evidence in the New Testament that his heart changed. How does something like this happen? And what does it mean for you and I as we claim to follow Christ? Here's where the truth of conversion, the doctrine of conversion, as we think about the gospel and what it means to follow Christ, we need to think carefully about the doctrine of conversion and have a genuine understanding of what it means to follow Christ and have our hearts changed. What is it that makes someone genuinely saved? It's not a profession. It's not the words that come out of their mouth. It's not Judas saying, I'm one of the twelve. It's not Judas saying, I follow Jesus. It's having his heart changed and converted by genuine faith. Faith and repentance that he understood who Jesus was that would change his life. You see, we need to think carefully about the fact that as we make a profession of faith, we celebrate that profession of faith. Those are good things. But remember, it's not the profession that saves someone. It's not raising a hand or walking an aisle or praying a prayer that is is the, the causatory act that saves someone. These decisions might be the place in which your faith is expressed, and so we praise God for that profession of faith. But remember, it is faith in the finished work of Christ alone that saves us. It's not the profession itself. It's not the decision itself that saves. It's the faith and what that decision represents. That's why there's so many warnings to this in the New Testament. And I want you to see some of them as we just walk through them in the book of Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. And Paul has this to say as after he's warning them. He's talking about the repeated times he's warned them about the conduct of their faith and the conduct of their behavior. And he says this in verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. You go over to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 19. And 1 John is all about those, the distinction between those who are in and those who are out, those who are genuine and those who are fakes. And John says it this way. He's speaking of those that have left and departed the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Why is there repeated warning after warning after warning in the New Testament? It's because just because someone looks like a Christian or acts like a Christian or says the things, that is not what makes someone a Christian. It it is the faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that produces a repentance that changes someone's life. It's Christ's shed blood that makes someone a Christian. And we can rejoice in that truth. And so we ought to think carefully about that. I'm not saying that you can't have assurance of your salvation. You can. Scripture makes it clear where we should find our assurance. Our assurance should be grounded in the finished work of Christ and the full counsel of Scripture and not in our profession. To to ground our assurance in our profession would be to be presumptuous. 
So there's a well-known story of Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher in London, as he was walking down the street one day, and he sees a drunken man leaning against the lamppost. And this man calls out to him, Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon says, No, why should I? And he says, Because I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon replies, Well, you must be one of mine, because you are certainly not one of the Lord's. And he, he understood what it was like to have people that walked a certain walk and they said certain things, but their lives were not changed by Christ. Their lives were not changed by the truth of the gospel. And he frequently would speak to this. And so in one of his sermons, as he's comparing and contrasting and warning against that kind of a false assurance of salvation. Now, I'm going to read a lengthy quote. I wish I had this London accent, this British accent. That would be great. So you got to, it would make it easier to stick with me on the these and the thous and the dusts and all of that. So try to stick with me. He's speaking of this group of people. They say that they are saved and they stick to it that they are and they think it wicked to doubt it, but yet they have no reason to warrant their confidence. There are those who are ready to be fully assured. There are others to whom it will be death to talk of it. There is a great difference between presumption and full assurance. Full assurance is reasonable. It is based on solid ground. Presumption takes for granted, and with brazen face pronounces that to be its own which it has no right to whatsoever. Beware, I pray thee, of presuming that thou art saved. If with thy heart thou dost trust in Jesus, then thou art saved. But if thou merely sayest, I trust in Jesus, it doth not save thee. If thy heart be renewed, if thou shalt hate the things that thou didst once love, and love the things that thou didst once hate, if thou hast really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in thee, if thou be born again, then thou hast thou reason to rejoice. But if there be no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then the saying, I am saved, is but thine own assertion. And it may delude, but it will not deliver thee. Our prayer ought to be, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed with real faith, with real salvation, with the trust in Jesus that is the essential of faith, and not with the conceit that begets credulity. God, preserve us from imaginary blessings. Let us be people that strive to have a true understanding of what it means to express our faith in Christ, that we ground our assurance in the finished work of Christ and that by faith we lay hold of those truths. And, and then that brings us great joy that, that the doctrine of conversion teaches us that there really is life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and people really do change, that we are not once stuck as the creatures that we always once were. And let us ground our truth and hope and confidence in that fact. That's how Judas could do what he did and spend so much time with Christ. And many of the right words come out of his mouth, but with the wrong heart. He was never born again. New Testament doesn't give us reason to think that anyways, based on the way his life and behavior went. So let's think about Mary. Let's think about Mary. If Judas was counterfeit and rotten and his conduct was fake, what about Mary? 
J.C. Ryle said this, it is vain to expect a man to do much for Christ when he has no sense of debt to Christ. Judas looked at everything Mary did and said, what a waste. Mary looked at the Messiah and said, he's my savior, he's my Lord, and she extravagantly poured out this very expensive blessing on Christ. She anointed him in a way which she probably didn't even fully understand the implications of what she was doing. She knew he was the Messiah. I doubt that she understood in just a few short days he was going to die. There's one pastor and author that has said it this way, describing what Mary did. The scent that covered Jesus' body, filling the room, would remain on him for the next several days before the scented oils dissipated and were spent. He knew well what those days would bring. Mary's perfume would stay with him through everything Judas had set in motion. His arrest, trial, death, and burial. Judas's and the chief priest's plan would not be able to escape Mary's gift. Every lash of a whip would release the scent of nobility into the air. With every blow to his face, every rub of the crossbeam, every tearing away of a garment from a wound, the scent of opulence would fill the air and linger wherever he went as though a king had passed through this violent world and left behind his spirit. Jesus, as the king, was worthy of Mary's extravagant act of devotion. Do we understand that Jesus is who he says he is and is worthy of our most extravagant acts of devotion, that you cannot waste your life lived in service to Christ? Mary knew he was the Messiah. She lived her life in devotion. It was not a waste. Judas was the one who was wasting his life. He didn't see it and realize it, but he was, saw value in money for the here and now to waste on himself. Mary saw the intrinsic value value in who Jesus was and was willing to, to extravagantly live her life devoted to Christ. So let me ask you, in your life, do you see the intrinsic value of living your life for Christ? The way you spend your time here with this church or whatever church it is you're a part of, the way you spend your financial resources, do you see it as Christ extravagantly worthy of that? Or are there times that you look at it and call it a waste? You know, the world ought to look at us as Christians and our commitment to gathering and spending time to one another and our commitment to the way that we spend our money and they ought to look at us and say, you are weird. You are strange. What a waste. How tragic that you would throw a life that way. And if we were honest, there would be times that those of us who follow Christ look at the pleasures of the world and the way we could be spending our Sunday mornings in the pursuit of pleasure or the way we could be using our financial resources and we might question, is it worth it? Am I wasting? And it would be a tragic mistake to miss the supreme value of who Christ is and that only a life lived in service to him is the proper way to spend a life. There is a well-known sermon that a man named John Piper preached close to 20 years ago and he was speaking to a group of young people, tens of thousands of college students, and he was challenging them to live their lives in supreme worthiness, live their lives in service to the supreme worthiness of who Christ was. And so he tells them the story of missionaries that were from their church that had given their lives in service to Christ. And so he says this, I want to read this portion of what he said. 
Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities and ending retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they are dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I ask? It is not a tragedy. I will read you what a tragedy is. And then he goes to an article in a Reader's Digest, and he says, this is a tragedy. The title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early. This was in February of 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler they play softball and collect shells. That is a tragedy. And he challenged these young people to see the supreme worthiness of who Christ was. That to look at these two 80-year-old women who had devoted their life to Christ and they died in an instant and where we would look at that and say, did they enjoy life? Did they get the pleasures out of their life? Why did they waste their life? And he says, no! They saw it. They caught who Christ was. They realized his supreme worth. And just like Mary, that was not an extravagant waste. That was an acknowledgement of who Jesus was. And to just simply trifle life away on things that will have no eternal value, that's what a waste is. And Judas had no concept of that. He did not care about the supreme worthiness of Christ. He cared about himself. And so I challenge us, brothers and sisters, how will you spend your life? Do you see the worthiness of Christ? Do you see the supreme value in a life lived in service to Christ and magnifying him to make him known? And so I speak to those of you that are nearing that retirement age and you're thinking about what is, what is empty nest going to contain for us? What will the days of retirement be? And I hope there are times where you get to maybe go out on a boat and collect some seashells and play softball. But may that not be your greatest dream. May you seek ways to use your life and those years and the resources that God has given you to serve Him. As I think about the demographic of our church, I think that God has given us some that are ready. They're going to have more time on their hands because they're ready to return from their jobs. And, and we need to think of ways, how can your service be put to work here at Shawnee Baptist Church in, in the lives of our missionaries? Pray that God would help us organize some plan because I, I can't figure out what it is, but I, I've got ideas and I think that somebody could help those of you that are saying, yes, I want to live, I'm, I'm about to quit my job and I've got ways to serve God and wouldn't it be awesome if we had people who said, yeah, I, I want to do that. Young people, as you think about, uh, as you think about making plans for, for high school, for college, you need to figure out what university you're going to and what career you're going into, and that will be important, but may that not be your greatest goal. 
The goal of Christian young people is not to have great careers and great universities, though God will call some of you to that. Make Jesus the supreme value of your life and, and that you realize that living for him and serving him and if God calls you to a certain university and a certain career, make sure you're using that to serve Jesus. May that be the driving passion of your life because brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth it. His intrinsic value is there. And may we not waste it on lesser things. May the world look at us and say, why are they so strange? And may we say, because I know who Jesus is and I've seen his value and I've seen his worth and I've committed my life to it. Let's be like Mary, not Judas, because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the worth of who you are. Thank you for all that you did to come to this earth to pour out your life to make a sacrifice for the payment of sins. Thank you for making that known to us in your scriptures. May we as a people see you as, as worthy of our lives. May we live our lives devoted to you. Father, if there are those who are here and they think they're following you but their heart hasn't changed, convict them of the need of Christ. If there are some here for the first time who have known and understood the gospel and what it is that Christ did on the cross as a payment for sin, may you, may you urge them to call out to you in repentance, to make a decision to trust in you, and may their trust be based in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Encourage us as we go from here this week. Show us how to live for you. We ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.